And I'm Andy. Welcome back. It's episode 14 of Poifix Podcast. And we're super excited to be talking about, um, which series are we talking about today, Wes? This is wave six of the main X-Men toy line. We're looking at the heroes. Fantastic. Before we dive into the figures, should we talk a little bit about what was going on in the world of X-Men in 1994? Let's. And can I first start by talking about the animated series? Uh, Absolutely not. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Well, as we know, season one finished in 93. So it kicked back off with season two in October of 1993. So right in 1994, we're starting the halfway point of season two. I just bring that up so that we can start discussing when we deal with these characters specifically. We're going to notice that these characters we're covering, well, 66% of them, (laughs) draw heavily from what's happening in the animated series at the time. Absolutely. And that dovetails so nicely with what I was going to talk about, too. I I do think you're giving the the season a little bit more credit than it's due. It started in October 1993, and it was over by February 1994. The X-Men the Animated Series was really sort of like, you know, the writers were prescient in that they the way they constructed seasons were similar to how TV shows today are constructed, where seasons are like, you know, 10, 11, 12 episodes max. Um, Little did we know that the X-Men animated series was also co-produced with BBC and premiered at 9 p.m. across the pond. Exactly. So in 1994, um, in the comics were post-Fatal Attractions. That was like the big crossover in 1993. I mentioned that because the, you know, in earlier episodes of this podcast, we've talked about the impact of the image exodus on the X-Men line. You know, Jim Lee was handed the uh, flagship X-Men Volume 2. Rob Liefeld was handed X-Force, and then they left fairly, very shortly thereafter. Post-Image Exodus, the writers who inherited the X-Books spent some time trying to clean up the loose plot threads from that time. At this point, we are firmly in, you know, a different era. And it no longer feels, at least to me, like the writers are scrambling to figure something out. At this point, Scott Lobdell is writing Uncanny X-Men. Fabian Nicieza is writing X-Men volume two you know i would argue that those writers have brought back in some of the soap opera elements that figured so heavily into the iconic claremont run of the x-men some of the storylines that were going on were the sort of mystery between psylocke and revanche i don't know if i'm pronouncing that her name correctly there by the way um in my mind you are i always okay, call it i feel like it's french um so it's probably i'm probably wrong in any case it's they, just rev in french everything drama, else is half silent the, the drama between them there's also the mystery of gambit's secret which is like being brought up all the time now because Sabretooth is now in the x-mansion this is also the year that Cyclops and Jean Grey got married, but now the stories are really focusing a lot on the fact that the X-Men are a family and are really developing these more, you know, character-driven, longer-term plot threads. You know, whether they're done well or not is up to debate. I have a, a huge soft spot in my heart for this era of the X-Men. The comics are selling really well. I, I was looking online, I was trying to find some figures, um, like sales figures for the X-Men line in the 90s. I, I didn't. I, I went through a whole page of Google, like the first page of Google search results and I didn't find them and I gave up. So, so you've really exhausted all there is to look at. 
that's the sort of investigative excellence we bring to this podcast. Exactly. So that's the level of effort that I bring to everything I do. So if any of our, uh, our listeners know more about that, let us know. I, I, I do think it's true, though, that broadly the X-Men comics were selling very, very well at this time. This was the year that the line expanded further to include a fifth team, Generation X. Yeah, I know, which eventually we'll get to talk about because they did make a toy line. Tying back to what you were talking about, Wes, this is also a time when the toy line starts to break off a bit from the comics, arguably. And I think that we see a much stronger influence of the animated series. And the animated series is also super popular. Like, I think it was very well received critically. It, do, it makes sense that you couldn't find sales figures for the comics because they were just printing them hand over fist. Uh, they were widely available and everyone was buying them because they were collector's items. Fatal Attractions, they were printing them with those 3D cards on the cover. Yes, it was. Yeah, with the holographic cards. Everything seemed like a really good investment. Just like Pokemon cards are again, all of a sudden. The crossover before Fatal Attractions, Executioner Song, that was really, um, you know, dealing with the fallout from the image exodus and trying to sort of make sense of the dangling plot threads. By the time they got to Fatal Attractions, the writers of that time, you know, now were, were really, you know, pushing forward their vision for the line and their vision for the, the stories. They're, they're not perfect stories by any stretch, but I think that there's a lot of fun to be had in this era of X-Men comics. Agreed. Uh, but it also, in some ways, it doesn't really matter for this podcast, because up until now, they've been pulling so many characters directly from the Jim Lee stories. The offerings that we get in this wave are a little bit different, right? Right. Starting with, you know, the most important one we've been waiting for. Beast. I feel like you've asked in multiple prior episodes, where is Beast? <clears throat> Finally, he is here. With faint heart averted feet and many a tear in our opposed path to persevere. A minor poet for a minor obstacle. Bluford and Boisterous, the beast's monstrous exterior conceals the fact that he possesses the mind of an articulate, well-read genius. Ever ready to answer the call, should either man or mutant be in peril, the beast employs both his dexterous digits and his scientific skills as a member of the X-Men. Fantastic. So the uh, beast-born Hank McCoy was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, first debuted in X-Men, Uncanny X-Men number one in 1963. He's one of the original five members of the X-Men. I have a soft spot in my heart for those first X-Men ones. Thank you, Marvel Masterworks hardcovers that my aunt owned. Back when he just sort of looked like a normal human. He had really big hands and really, really big, big hands feet. and feet. I don't think he liked to wear shoes. So you know, September, you know they say about guys with big hands and big feet? That they're funny, articulate, well-read, and will help man or mutants in peril? That's exactly what they say. So he was part of the, the first run of uh, X-Men comics all the way into about March 1970 when issue 66 they stopped sort of creating new content yeah. for that storyline. Because the X-Men were canceled. Um, because they didn't weren't selling very well at that time. Yes. What happened to Beast after that? I feel like you're setting me up. Did something important happen to Beast as a character? I, it it did. So um, Beast went on to um, become a member of the Avengers. Before that, he was in, I guess there was like an anthology series or something like that called Amazing Adventures. And there was a storyline about him there that involved him creating this potion in his lab and he drank it. And I haven't read the comics. So I'm giving the broad strokes, but it transformed transformed him into like the beast that I think a lot of us picture, which is the, you know, furry sort of monstrous looking beast. When he transformed though, he was originally gray. I have to ask because of what you put on the Instagram this week. Do you know the villain that he's fighting in that storyline? It's Quasimodo. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Another so, literary themed villain. Yeah. For our listeners who don't follow us on Instagram, you really should. Shame on you. This week. Uh, yeah. We talked a little bit about literary themed villains, which didn't, I think I may have been like reaching too high with that. I don't think there's that many of them. And I, most of our followers didn't seem to want to engage with that. But wow, Quasimodo. I didn't even know about Quasimodo. Is he like, I, I have a lot of questions about him, but we're talking about Beast. So Beast uh, gets his fur at that time. Originally it was gray. At some point it turns blue. I actually read a really interesting and i'll put the link in the show notes because he did start gray and then later on in that storyline he looks at himself in the mirror and he goes oh this fur all over me is black and back then they would you know if you're showing black hair black hair you would put streaks of blue in it but then when he made the jump to avengers like the character is depicted as blue. Oh, that's fascinating. So it just was like, it was just like a coloring thing. Yeah. So I, I'll link, it was from comic book resources. They sort of like chased this all down oh, that's tr- through cool. academic researchers. I, I did not know that until today. That's so interesting. There was something similar with the, with the, when the Hulk first debuted, he was originally gray, but that was like difficult to print. So they made him green for that reason. Mm. So you mentioned Beast then becomes an Avenger, which is a big deal because, you know, as a mutant, the Avengers are like the kind of A-team superheroes for Marvel Comics. So for him to be a mutant and be an Avenger was a big deal. I'm so, raising uh, my hand. <laughs> I know, yeah, like our listeners can't see this. Wes keeps raising his hand, like as if I'm the teacher. This is, a, well, you are. And <laughs> it's rare that I'm this passionate about it. I, I have to say, I read this panel. I've had a lot of time this week, listeners. And I read this panel from the when Beast first joins the Avengers. And I think that one thing is really interesting. I love Thor tells Beast, quote, speak not your secret identity. We don't require such disclosures. To which Beast, in true 1975 fashion, responds, it's cool, Thunder God. It's cool. It doesn't make any difference to me because I don't have another identity anymore, secret or otherwise. Wow. That's really like- I mean, that's pretty awesome. To say as a character, it's like my mutant identity is my whole identity. Very progressive. And I wonder how much the author was thinking about that. That is really, that is really interesting. It's also interesting that the Avengers didn't require, it seems like you should know who your teammates really are. Um, I think that probably would have kept them from a lot of drama. <laughs> if you find out like Steve Rogers was in a car crash, but you don't know that he was Captain America, then then you're like, where is Captain America? <laughs> Why is he not showing up to our meetings? You, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't have sent flowers to the hospital. It just it does sort of snowball. Yeah. And it's, it also like, I would argue that's hard to like really develop meaningful friendships. <laughs> when you <laughs> don't know who someone really is. Beast has like an interesting relationship to his mutant identity. And in the more sort of recent comic books, I think that you know, like for a time he kind of like left the mutant community and then became an Avenger and in a way that like maybe wasn't so great. Um, anyway, but we're not talking about that. Back in the 70s, he became an Avenger, then a Defender. And then when the original X-Men got together, back got back together after Jean Grey was revealed to be alive, he was one of those who founded X-Factor. And then he's he's also mutated a few times since this first mutation in the comics, but we don't need to talk about that because that's all post-early 90s. In the comics of this era, he was a member of the uh, the Blue Strike Force, And he was a fairly prominent member of that team. So it's kind of surprising that it took them this long to make him into an action figure. But as I've I've said a couple of times before, I think that they're holding on to him to make him sort of like a tentpole character for a future wave. And this was the wave when they, you know, finally rolled him out. For sure. 
you want to talk about his animated series? Because I think that that's also an important context for him. Season one, everyone will remember, he gets captured in the first or second episode and he's in captivity the whole season, which I think is such an interesting concept, especially for a kid's show. He, he remains in the opening credits and then like you just don't see him for most of the series. He shows up in that one Juggernaut episode in jail and he like stays in jail. There's a scene where Magneto comes to break him out and he refuses to leave because he's going to wait and let justice free him, which of course we know it doesn't because justice doesn't work for us mutants like everyone else. And it was also like, it was a storyline that lasted the entire season. He finally gets let out in the final episode of the first season when he's pardoned by Senator Kelly, who's had an appeal face turn. There's a face heel turn. He becomes a good guy. It was like a very mature plot for a children's show and also like the TV shows of this era didn't have season long arcs in the way that we're used to now but he was a major BBC elements playing into the design of the show I love it but he was a major character on the on the cartoon he did have a more prominent role in season two and going forward this in this wave he finally got an action figure I think it's significant uh, in season episode 10 of season two which airs January 1994 is this is this Uh, Beauty and the Beast Oh, yes. This is like within a couple months of this this action figure hitting the shelves. The storyline's pretty significant. So Beast, so one of the really interesting things about Beast as a character, they talk about this on the card back, the the contrast of him having this sort of like monstrous, big, you know, big muscular bruiser appearance. And then he is this like really intelligent, really kind, sort of gentle soul. Um, he's also a scientist. But in the episode, he is, I guess, like studying how to cure blind a type of blindness. It seems like maybe he has another job outside of being an X-Man because he has like this lab that he goes to and he's helping this woman named Carly. Just so you know, listeners, I'm drawing on my memory of like this episode. Like I haven't seen it in like many, many years. She's blind. I mean, she's like his patient flash girlfriend, so that's problematic, but she's blind. He's trying to help her. And throughout season two of the animated series, one of the ongoing storylines in season two was the Friends of Humanity, which are basically neo-Nazis who are anti-mutants. Again, a very mature theme to have in a children's cartoon. For sure. I, I think it was a super mature theme, but also for children is not a very enjoyable villain. They remember not really latching onto them as something really that interesting because I'd rather see Magneto flying around and shooting lasers, let's be honest. Yeah, because they're not super villains. They're just normal humans. I I, I really like that storyline, though. You know, the, the Friends of Humanity were an embodiment of anti-mutant sentiment. They end up kidnapping Carly because she is with Beast, and then he has to rescue them, uh, rescue her. There's some other stuff that happens, and eventually he cures her blindness, and they continue to date. Is that... Am I missing anything, Wes? Logan also goes undercover. But I thought at the end, for some reason, I thought they decided they couldn't date anymore. That may be. Maybe they just didn't want to add Carly to the opening credits as another (laughs) ongoing character. I remember some some of the tension being him being afraid she would judge him for how he looks when she can see. And then she can see and she doesn't judge him. I seem to recall that she gets a mention in a later episode. She doesn't show up, but I think that an episode where Beast isn't there, someone is like, oh, he's off with Carly. (laughs) I could be be making that up. Beauty and the Beast was also the resolution of the Friends of Humanity storyline. The leader of this organization was Graydon Creed. In this one episode, it's revealed to 
the entire organization that he is the son of Sabretooth. Like Beast and Wolverine work together to and use a holographic projector to reveal that. And so I guess it's, it's sort of implied that the organization disbands because they're all horrified that their leader is actually the son of a mutant. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate that the only way we like actually get them to change their opinion about their hatred is by playing into their hatred, but whatever. A win's a win, X-Men. I like the messiness of it, but you're right. Their hearts and minds are not changed. They don't suddenly realize that, excuse me, that being bigoted against mutants is bad. Their bigotry makes them decide to follow a different leader, I guess. And they, and they show up later in the show. I think the point that one of the points that you were making, which is a really important one, is that that part of the tension in that episode is Beast's concern about whether or not this woman will actually care for him when she sees the way he looks. Because unlike all the other X-Men who are part of the, the main cast on the animated series, he visibly looks like a mute. Like he does not look like a normal human. And that is accurately captured on this action Figure. I know I realize we've talked so much about Beast. He's a great character. I'm gonna spoilers, I'm gonna have much less to say about our third figure. Uh, <laughs> I actually remember when I acquired this figure. Like it was such a big deal. Um, it was at Toys R Us um in my hometown. And I remember like going going back there in the aisle and like seeing Beast on the pegs and being so excited because for me, Beast was such a long time coming. I had actually taken an old Incredible Hulk figure and painted him blue to be a sub a substitute for Beast because he was such an important character. I will say that the figure itself is a lot better than my painted Incredible Hulk figure was. It's a really great figure. It's fantastic for $5. Uh, the sculpt is really good. Again, like I would say that the sculpt like holds up to what you would see in the Marvel Legends line these days. He very much looks like he walked right off of the of the screen uh, from the cartoon. Yeah, it's, it's the cartoon one, a hundred percent. It's a hundred percent new sculpt on that on the body with the tufts of fur coming off of his arms and legs. Amazing traps. <laughs> He's he's coming with are 100% from that opening sequence. You know, all the characters in this line have become more muscly as it's gone on. And they decide, because Beast actually is, you know, stronger and more muscled than the other X-Men. So they made Beast extra muscly. Like he is huge. To the table, he brings his mutant flipping powers. What did you make of this action figure uh, feature? It never worked for me. I don't think it worked for, I don't think it worked in the prototype (laughs) stage. I don't, I, I think you were supposed to like push him down and then he would like flip and land on his feet. Looked at this closely. Here's what it says on the back. Mutant flipping power, push down on roll wheel and back and slide finger off to make beast crouch and flip. Use hanging bar to suction cut beast to window, mirror, etc. The The roll wheel was especially baffling. You know, we've seen a lot of action figures in this line that have a little sort of divot on the like a little like not a lever but like a little like molded piece on the back that you could use to manipulate it but he had a wheel for some reason that like really served no purpose and it was like another moving part to put on this toy so you know that it costs more money to make seems to me like it served no purpose if i recall it wasn't a full wheel because it had a little bit of a tab on it which <laughs> it did we did get flexible ankles that's true molded toes his knees bent but they were on like a spring so you couldn't you couldn't like bend them to play with you know like you couldn't keep them bent you you know Wes that I am all about the action features that do not interfere with playability I don't think that this one interfered too much the just the quality of the figure 
made up for it because it's, it's just like such a good looking toy. It really is fantastic. And when you look at the face, they bothered to go in. They, the eyes and teeth have painted elements on them, which is nice because most of him is blue. So they, they took that extra step. I mean, they give him this weird pipe accessory that has a suction mm-hmm. cup on it that I guess I don't remember ever really using this. But the idea was that you could like make him hang off something by by suctioning the accessory and then having him grab it. I, I do like that they did that instead of putting the suction cup on him somewhere like they did with Nightcrawler back in wave one. Maybe this isn't true, but I'd like to think that the toy makers realize that children don't want toys with suction cups on them. The artwork on the card back has significantly changed here. And I think that it corresponds with the focus on more more like the animated series. The character is much softer looking and is not pseudo Jim Lee. It looks more like a, um, an illustration from a cartoon. Yeah, but we still have the same basic design with the um, upper left-hand corner having heroes depicted on it. Our second character, his head does not look good there, but we'll get to that in a moment, I guess. I do like that, you know, I said that the toy looks like it could have walked off the screen. It does also like really fit it. Like it looks like this does in the comics too. Like it doesn't feel like it's overly cartoony or anything like that. Even though I I think that we're seeing here the beginning of a shift in the focus of the toy line in terms of spotlighting characters from the cartoon, I don't think that there's any kind of like cartoonification that's happening, at least not yet. The only thing I might modify is instead of saying he walked right off the screen, I would say he sort of front flipped, fell forward off the screen. (laughs) Into our hearts. Shall we move on to our- Morph? Hey, whenever I got into trouble at school, I used to turn myself into the principal. Once a member of the Uncanny X-Men, Morph sacrificed his life to save his teammates from the mutant-hunting Sentinels. Resurrected by the evil Mr. Sinister and set against his one-time allies, Morph now uses his shape-shifting abilities in an attempt to put an end to his former friend. What do you hear there? So that did not happen in a comic book. Not that is 100% it. the animated series. That is 100%. I mean, this character is 100% the animated series. We can talk a little bit about, he is based on a comic book character, so I can talk a little bit about that briefly. Morph, born Kevin Sidney, is actually a Silver Age comic book character. He first appeared back in X-Men 35, 1967, as Changeling. He was a, a member of the Villainous Factor 3, and then he got written into a retcon that brought Professor X back from the dead in the late 60s. So like Professor X had died, but then they revealed it wasn't Professor X, it was just Changeling pretending to be Professor X. Um, and so that meant that Changeling died. And then and he died in like, I don't know, like 68 or 69. And then people just forgot about him. Flash forward to the early 90s and the writers of the animated series are writing the story of Night of the Sentinels. The writers, as I understand it, like wanted to kill off an X-Man in the first episode in order to establish the adult tone of the series, which I also just want to like, like zoom out and say like, that is crazy. <laughs> that they're like, oh, we're starting this new Saturday morning cartoon. We really want to make sure that the children watching this know that characters can die. <laughs> there are consequences in this world. Yeah. To me, it feels like something that happened in the 80s, though, quite a bit in cartoons. I, I, you know, like, I think about like Optimus Prime dying in the first Transformers movie. That was not as uncommon in children and in, in media directed toward children. But it had become uncommon by the 90s and um, it really makes the X-Men animated series stick out. The writers wanted to kill someone, but they 
needed a character that like was kind of a blank slate that, you know, fans wouldn't be upset. Like they couldn't kill Beast, for example. So they they pulled this character out from the archive. At that point, he'd been dead for over 20 years. So in Eric Leewald's book, previously on the X-Men, it references that they had wanted to use Thunderbird in oh, this role. Interesting. Which is why Thunderbird is on the opening sequence. But they decided it would probably look bad if they killed the only Native American character in the first episode. And Thunderbird, of course, is the, was the first, like, sort of, true x-man to die in the comics that's fascinating so which which yeah it basically follows what happened in the comics to thunderbird but they decide not to do that so instead we get no native american representation on the animated series yeah that seemed like a better choice to them i guess um although uh, eventually we do get it's not clear if it's warpath or thunderbird um because they had like the similar costumes but we do get one of the proud star brothers showing up um, on Genosha in episode six, I think. So, so yeah, you were mentioning that they sort of invent full cloth this new character. Yeah, and they like, but like, I, I think it's really to the credit of the writers that they didn't, because they could have just created a character from scratch, but they're like, oh no, like let's base this on a character that actually existed who's actually dead in the comics. And Changeling in the comics technically died like as an ally of the X-Men. So, so he shows up in Night of the Sentinels and I think that they really just developed the personality for the show. Like they made him kind of a jokester. He um, was very close with Wolverine. And uh, and then, he, yeah, he gets, he gets brutally killed by the Sentinels when the X-Men infiltrate the Sentinel facility. And then I think, <laughs> talking about this before, like, you know, like in that scene, like the X-Men come back the X-Mansion after Beast getting captured and Morph being killed and there's just a scene of Storm sobbing. That's how I knew as like a 10 year old like this was a serious show with with serious ideas. It is uncomfortable and when you think about the character he is probably outside of Jubilee the easiest one for children to identify with because he's so playful in, in those scenes imagine the tone how different it would be if there had been a character like thunderbird in there instead and so we have a character who's easy to easy to identify with slaughtered in the first 30 minutes of the program yeah no i mean like as a kid i was like who is this character i don't know him he's funny i like him he's making jokes he seems interesting and i just i didn't believe it i didn't believe that he was really dead I was like, he can't be dead. He's going to come back before the end of this episode. And then it like that episode ends with Wolverine, like in the wilderness, you know, like morning morph. And I was just like, oh my God. Um, however, spoilers, morph turns out not to be dead. Um, so th they originally didn't want him to come back at yeah. all, but the fans spoke, right? So they had to bring him back. Which I don't know how the fans did that back in the early 90s. I mean, like I was a fan. I wanted him to come back, but I had no outlet. I wasn't, I wasn't writing to Fox Kids. He, um, apparently people did write to Fox Kids. They said they got so many actual letters, which I wouldn't have thought someone would read them. <laughs> <laughs> I guess someone did. Um, I did not write one. I do remember though, when I remember I got this magazine that was, it was about the X-Men. It may have been like put out by Wizard or something, but had a uh, an article about the then upcoming season two. And this is before season two debuted. And they talked about how Morph was coming back. And I was so excited to hear that. Spoilers. I know. Well, I mean, I feel like we spoiled it with the card back. Um, so then 
you find out that Morph is back in like the one of the first scenes of the first episode. So he shows up until Death Do Us Part, part one, which is the wedding of, is ostensibly the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. But spoilers, it's not a real, a real wedding because instead of it being a priest, it was Morph in disguise who married them. And I guess he hasn't been certified as a, you know, like officiant or whatever the term is. In Westchester County. <laughs> Yeah, so um, he comes back. He has been manipulated by Mr. Sinister. And he is, he sort of has a split personality where like part of him hates the X-Men, but then part of him doesn't. And visually they show this by him having like a bad face and a good face that he morphs between. And the bad face has like dark circles under his eyes. It's Um, me every day before work. Exactly. Season two, you're right. That comes out, that's October 1993. I just think it's insane because I I have to think this wave came out in spring of 94. And so the card back and the figure itself accurately depicts what is happening on screen that would have been within the past five months. So it was definitely developed in concert with the storyline. Morph has an arc that goes over the course of season two where he is working for Mr. Sinister but he has some ambivalence about it. In the first episode, you know, until Death to Us Part, Part One, he totally screws with the X-Men. Like he, you know, he immobilizes half of the team by using his like shape-shifting powers to trick them. And then in the final two episodes of season two, he kind of breaks free of Mr. Sinister's influence and helps the X-Men defeat Mr. Sinister. And there's like this really great scene where you know, like he really hates Cyclops because Cyclops left him behind, like left him to die. There's like this great scene where like Cyclops says like, you know, it doesn't matter, like you're still an X-Man. And like he, you know, he has a laser blaster because his powers are not offensive. He needs a laser blaster and he like shoots Mr. Sinister and he helps, you know, he helps the X-Men defeat Mr. Sinister. Um, at the end of that, I wanted him to come back as a member of the team. I was like, great. We got Morph back. I mean, sorry, we got Beast back at the end of season one. We're going to get Morph back at the end of season two. It was not meant to be. He goes to Muir Island to be rehabilitated. And he shows up three more times over the course of the series, I think. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten about the other times. Yeah, he gets a spotlight episode called Courage, where he, like, tries to rejoin the X-Men. But he's, like, not quite ready. And then he has a cameo at, at Cyclops and Jean Grey's second wedding, which is like sort of awkward given that he's the reason why they had to have a second wedding. And they shows up in the final episode of the series, actually rejoining the X-Men at that time. So he has like, he has a full sort of character progression and does eventually rejoin the team just in time for us to not see them anymore. One interesting choice in this figure is that, um, so like what Morph looks like, Morph looks like a man wearing the like standard Jim Lee blue and gold X-Men costume that we've talked about. What's interesting about the figure is that his look is actually not taken from the animated series. It's taken from the comic based on the animated series. In his early appearances in the, in, the, in the cartoon, he had black hair. And for whatever reason in the comic, X-Men Adventures, which I was you know, reading at the time, he had brown hair. And that's, that's actually like who we get in the figure. Maybe that's why the picture on the card back is so ugly. <laughs> I mean, I guess it says something about me that like, I noticed the difference and I thought about it. And I, I still think it's sort of an odd choice. Eventually, when Morph shows up again on the show, he'll have the brown hair that we see here. So I don't know why they changed the design between, I mean, again, like it's a really minor change. I don't know why they changed the design between the, the uh, cartoon itself and the and um, the comic book adaptation. Did, did you ever, did you have this figure, Wes? No, I did not. I didn't have it, which is sort of <gasps> crazy. 
because I loved the character of Morph so much. And I mean, I bought Ahab. So I don't know why I never got this figure. Um, one of my friends, though, did have it. So I did get to like interact with it at his house. I mean, it's I think it's like a very good representation of Morph. Um, the what, Do you want to talk about the action feature? Yeah, you can swap out his head with other heads. So it comes with like both like good morph and evil morph. And then which comes, is cool. Which is very cool. And then it comes with Cyclops and Wolverine. So when you when you put the Wolverine head on, it's basically just like Wolverine third edition without the claws. Except his face is melting. It's a really bad face sculpt. Oh god, it is a bad face. It looks like he's it looks like he's half shapeshifting. <laughs> also, like Morph's face sculpt is not that good. It looks like it's designed after like a 90s era sitcom dad. <laughs> I thought about With um, a six pack. Yeah, yeah, because of course he's in like peak. Well, I guess if he can shapeshift, we don't really know if he earned that six pack or not. Um, I actually have been hoping that Hasbro would make a toy of Morph of like this version of Morph. They haven't done it yet, but for all of our, our listeners from who work at Hasbro, like you know, you'd sell at least one if he made it. You accurately point out it's just like the third edition Wolverine, but it's still a new sculpt. That figure, it's it, it's not recycled pieces from the Cyclops or the Wolverine with the same body because it's taller. It's a little bit trimmer. Credit where it's due. Like th- this would have been very easy to have recycled, and they didn't do it for whatever reason. That's a that's a, a very good point. And also, in keeping with the the trend that we've talked about in the aesthetics of the line, you know, Morph is like Jack. He does have that like prominent like V-shaped torso, even though Cartoon I didn't get the sense that he was like the most, you know, athletic of the X-Men. If he if he did run faster, he wouldn't have gotten shot. Also, he pushes Wolverine out of the way, but Wolverine has a healing factor. He's also not the smartest X-Men. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> in the Age of Apocalypse storyline, which happens in 95, I guess because Morph had become, he had risen to prominence because of the cartoon and maybe the toy. Um, he does he does show up in this alternate universe story of the X-Men. And because of the popularity of that character, he would then show up in another alternate universe team called the Exiles. Morph becomes sort of like a more household name in the comics than he was prior to all of this. Unfortunately, he died before Xavier started making the Cerebro backup. So we're not going to see him on Krakoa, I don't think. Just like in the animated series, when they need a little bit more attention, I'm sure he'll pop out of one of them eggs. <laughs> um, it, it's a very, I'd say it's a great figure. It, it, it hit at just the right time. The card back talks about his turn as a villain. And he is on an orange-backed card, which is a heroic card. And this is more of a critique of the animated series, I guess. It's sort of unusual that, you know, given that he can shapeshift, he can he can change clothes more easily than any other character. After he becomes a bad guy, he does choose to continue to wear his X-Men uniform. I'd like to think that's for the simpler children viewers who probably wouldn't have been able to figure out he started wearing black or something. <laughs> Oh, that would be cool if he was like wearing like a black bodysuit. All right, yeah. shall we shall we go on to talk about the 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 third character <laughs> in this wave? Yeah, uh, are you talking about Wolverine sixth sixth edition? I am. He is listed as Wolverine sixth edition hyphen robot on figure realm or on the actual packaging. Robot Wolverine parentheses Albert or on the back of the package. Robot Wolverine dash Albert. <laughs> Sixth edition, pardon me. There goes Alpha Team Detective. Yo, Buckethead, let's have some fun. Target eliminated. Created by the villainous Reavers to be an exact duplicate of the X-Man Wolverine, 
Albert gained real feelings in an electrical accident. (laughs) (laughs) Is this how I can get like emotionally unavailable men to like electrocute them? Now constantly rebuilding himself out of whatever materials he can find, Albert scours the world for his heroic doppelganger, but whether to befriend him or to harm him, even he is not sure. Oh my gosh, this card pack is a mess, and this character is a mess. I want to point out that if if Reavers considered this to be an exact duplicate of Wolverine, they missed the mark. This is the nailed it edition of Wolverine. I could see Nicole Byer coming out and be like, eh, <laughs> no. You would not be going home with $1,000 if you showed up with Albert. <laughs> okay, okay. So Albert was created by Larry Hama and Mark Silvestri, two like very well-known creators. This is not their finest work, I don't think. His first appearance was in Wolverine number 37 in 1991. My next, <laughs> my, my next note is, who boy? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you know about robot wolverine slash albert west prepping for this episode i just sort of saw the pictures i i didn't have this one i remember a friend having it and i was like oh it's another like wolverine spinoff and then i started started i was like albert (laughs) and then i got caught a little bit researching and i saw some of the comic covers and i was like oh i vaguely remember that and also vaguely not caring i mean i was not going to read an issue of the wolverine solo series in order to find out more about this character and so i did not i I will say that albert got a trading card in one of the fleer x-men trading card lines i think that he probably got the card after this toy came out probably because there was still like boxes of unsold robot wolverines out there in the world that they were desperately trying to get rid I have to assume that Albert as a toy exists because of some sort of toy biz directive that there had to be a Wolverine in every wave to which I will give them credit for having found a Wolverine that is not Wolverine. Yeah, like a Wolverine who's actually an independent character. In theory... The idea of like an evil robot Wolverine sounds like it could be kind of cool. One surefire way to take away any cool points is to name that character Albert. And giving him a award named LCD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so she was another robot who was programmed to explode, I guess. And then she didn't want to explode... I don't know. I read this on Wikipedia. So like he helped her not explode by like hacking, by hacking a system or something. I don't know if they ever actually found Wolverine. I feel like eventually they found Wolverine and then they decided not to kill him. I think he actually showed up recently. Like he showed up in the Hunt for Wolverine, um, what the Hunt for Wolverine series, which was just like a, you know, a cash grab on Marvel's part. And I guess they like just, you know, they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel to like create plots for five different miniseries or whatever it was. Um, He also showed up in like Iron Man 2020, I read as um, because there's this, I guess they're like right now in the Marvel comics, I don't, I'm not reading anything that's not Krakoa related, but I guess there's some sort of backlash against AI, artificial intelligence. And so he was part of like the art, the the sort of counter movement (laughs) by sentient robots 
I don't know, it sounded it sounded really stupid. This is the the first and probably the last toy biz figure to have a chest piercing. Yeah, and he looks sort of like Frankenstein-y. Like the parts of him yeah. that are skin seem to be stitched together. I don't know, is that supposed to be real skin? I know the card back didn't specify. So he has swappable arms and he has two arms that look more humanoid and that have like skin on them and then two arms that are like pure metal that have claws. The swappable arms is kind of a cool action feature. I'll give it- And it, it sounds like it matches up well with Albert as a character. <laughs> As far as I can tell. I mean, visually, it's kind of interesting. Like, he looks like if Wolverine were made into a Reaver, which makes sense. He also, like, they're very clearly trying to reference Terminator, the Terminator movies, with him, like, having part of his face is, like, stripped of flesh, and there's, like, a metallic um, skull underneath with a red eye, which is, like, very Arnold in Terminator 2, which would have just come out two years before. So derivative. So, like, this is just so uninteresting. I mean, as a figure of this character, it is accurate. I guess that's true. Uh, it's sort of surprising to me that Albert never showed up in the animated series. I think it's to the credit of the animated series. It would have been easy for them to make an episode about the evil robot Wolverine. Like, the plot kind of writes itself. And I really want to congratulate them for not being so lazy as to do that and sparing us another place where we had to deal with Albert. It's odd that they put this character on a, an orange card back because I don't get the sense that he's heroic. No, but it's, he's being marketed as Wolverine. So yeah, I'm sure the uh, prompt for the toy makers was like, make a robot Wolverine. So they researched, they found this like legitimate robot Wolverine. And then like Avi Arad is like, check, you guys did it. Hasbro has remade so many of the toys of this era um, in the Marvel Legends line, and we have not gotten a Marvel Legends Albert. And I wonder if we will. If we if they make one, I won't buy it. That's for certain. No, no, I'm not um, not hopeful for that. Yawn. I didn't have this either. I don't even know if I knew anyone who did. Um, I mean, would you have bought this for two dollars? No, I think like I, I don't think I would have bought this for any amount of money um, because it's just like he's. It's a character that is like totally uninteresting to me. And it's ugly. It is. Yeah, it's, it's an ugly It's purposefully boy. ugly. It's ugly on purpose, but it's... Anything else to say about Albert? Bye. Well, I just, I want to point out that, you know, now with the inclusion of Beast and Morph, we have all of the male characters from the X-Men animated series, which is super exciting. I sound like a broken record. It makes the lack of Rogue and Jean Grey all the more notable. Like the fact that we got... The fact that we got Morph, I think it's great that we got Morph. The fact that we got him before we got Rogue is sort of ridiculous. You know, like knowing that Toy Biz decided they weren't going to make any more female characters for a while. I was thinking about other male characters, heroic characters of this era that could have been better choices than Albert. And I, I really couldn't think of any. I've just come to terms with the fact that a Wolverine is going to happen. You do a better job with practicing acceptance there than I do, I think. We're all constantly growing. Uh, absent Albert, this has been a stellar episode of amazing characters. <laughs> I, I agree. All right. So uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Uh, we're on social media. We're on Instagram at Toy Fix Podcast. Please follow us there. You can email us at toyfixpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if your letter is okay for us to read. We don't get a lot of them, so we were going to want to read any ones that we get. Um, we're also on Twitter, allegedly, but I don't use Twitter as much these days because we don't have any followers. Please take the time to rate us and write reviews on wherever you're listening to this to help other people find us. 
Yes. I specifically want to say if you have the time to leave a review and put just one sentence on Apple Podcasts, it'd be super helpful because the way they've changed organizing podcasts on there has made it harder for people to find us. And I know that's where a lot of people tend to listen to podcasts. So that'd be helpful. But also whatever sort of obscure podcasting platform you're using, if they have a star rating or a letter rating or a thumbs up rating, I'd love for you to take the extra time to, to leave us a rating. That'd be really helpful. I love the, the plea for ratings. At least we don't have a Patreon that we ask you to support. Uh, Yet. So until they make a Morph second edition featuring Morph dressed as the priest at Cyclops and Jean Grey's wedding, make mine toy effects.